We granted certiorari in these cases in which the United States seeks to enjoin the New York Times and the Washington Post from publishing the contents of a classified study entitled History of U.S. Decision-Making Process on Vietnam Policy. Any system of prior restraints of expression comes to this court bearing a heavy presumption against its constitutional validity. The government thus carries a heavy burden of showing justification for the imposition of such a restraint. The District Court for the Southern District of New York, in the New York Times case, and the District Court for the District of Columbia and the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, in the Washington Post case, held that the government had not met that burden. We agree. The judgment of the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit is therefore affirmed. The order of the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit is reversed, and the case is remanded with directions to enter a judgment affirming the judgment of the District Court for the Southern District of New York. The stays entered June 25, 1971, by the court are vacated. The judgments shall issue forthwith. So ordered. Mr. Justice Black, with whom Mr. Justice Douglas joins, concurring. I adhere to the view that the government's case against the Washington Post should have been dismissed and that the injunction against the New York Times should have been vacated without oral argument when the cases were first presented to this court. I believe that every moment's continuance of the injunctions against these newspapers amounts to a flagrant, indefensible, and continuing violation of the First Amendment. Furthermore, after oral argument, I agree completely that we must affirm the judgment of the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit and reverse the judgment of the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit for the reasons stated by my brothers Douglas and Brennan. In my view, it is unfortunate that some of my brethren are apparently willing to hold that the publication of news may sometimes be enjoined. Such a holding would make a shambles of the First Amendment. Our government was launched in 1789 with the adoption of the Constitution. The Bill of Rights, including the First Amendment, followed in 1791. Now, for the first time in the 182 years since the founding of the Republic, the federal courts are asked to hold that the First Amendment does not mean what it says, but rather means that the government can halt the publication of current news of vital importance to the people of this country. In seeking injunctions against these newspapers, and in its presentation to the court, the executive branch seems to have forgotten the essential purpose and history of the First Amendment. When the Constitution was adopted, Many people strongly opposed it because the document contained no Bill of Rights 
to safeguard certain basic freedoms. They especially feared that the new powers granted to a central government might be interpreted to permit the government to curtail freedom of religion, press, assembly, and speech. In response to an overwhelming public clamor, James Madison offered a series of amendments to satisfy citizens that these great liberties would remain safe and beyond the power of government to abridge. Madison proposed what later became the First Amendment in three parts, two of which are set out below and one of which is proclaimed, the people shall not be deprived or abridged of their right to speak, to write, or to publish their sentiments, and the freedom of the press as one of the great bulwarks of liberty shall be inviolable. The amendments were offered to curtail and restrict the general powers granted to the executive, legislative, and judicial branches two years before the original Constitution. The Bill of Rights changed the original Constitution into a new charter under which no branch of government could abridge the people's freedoms of press, speech, religion, and assembly. Yet the Solicitor General argues, and some members of the court appear to agree, that the general powers of the government adopted in the original Constitution should be interpreted to limit and restrict the specific and emphatic guarantees of the Bill of Rights adopted later. I can imagine no greater perversion of history. Madison and the other framers of the First Amendment, able men that they were, wrote in language that they earnestly believed could never be misunderstood. Quote, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of the press. Unquote. Both the history and language of the First Amendment support the view that the press must be left free to publish news, whatever the source, without censorship, injunctions, or prior restraint. In the First Amendment, the Founding Fathers gave the free press the protection it must have to fulfill its essential role in our democracy. The press was to serve the governed, not the governors. The government's power to censor the press was abolished so that the press would remain forever free to censure the government. The press was protected so that it could bear the secrets of government and inform the people. Only a free and unrestrained press can effectively expose deception in government. And paramount among the responsibilities of a free press is the duty to prevent any part of the government from deceiving the people and sending them off to distant lands to die of foreign fevers and foreign shot and shell. In my view, far from deserving condemnation for their courageous reporting, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other newspapers should be commended for serving the purpose 
that the founding fathers saw so clearly in revealing the workings of government that led to the Vietnam War, the newspapers nobly did precisely what the founders hoped and trusted they would do. The government's case here is based on premises entirely different from those that guided the framers of the First Amendment. The Solicitor General has carefully and emphatically stated, quote, Now, Mr. Justice Black, your construction of the First Amendment is well known, and I certainly respect it. You say that no law means no law, and that should be obvious. I can only say, Mr. Justice, that to me it is equally obvious that no law does not mean no law, and I would seek to persuade the court that that is true. There are other parts of the Constitution that grant powers and responsibilities to the executive, and the First Amendment was not intended to make it impossible for the executive to function or to protect the security of the United States, unquote. And the government argues in its brief that in spite of the First Amendment, the authority of the executive department to protect the nation against publication of information whose disclosure would endanger the national security stems from two interrelated sources, the constitutional power of the president over the conduct of foreign affairs and his authority as commander-in-chief. In other words, we are asked to hold that, despite the First Amendment's emphatic command, the executive branch, the Congress, and the judiciary can make laws enjoining publication of current news and abridging freedom of the press in the name of national security. The government does not even attempt to rely on any act of Congress. Instead, it makes the bold and dangerously far-reaching contention that the courts should take it upon themselves to make a law abridging freedom of the press in the name of equity, presidential power, and national security, even when the representatives of the people in Congress have adhered to the command of the First Amendment and refused to make such a law. To find that the president has inherent power to halt the publication of news by resort to the courts would wipe out the First Amendment and destroy the fundamental liberty and security of the very people the government hopes to make secure. No one can read the history of the adoption of the First Amendment without being convinced beyond any doubt that it was injunctions like those sought here that Madison and his collaborators intended to outlaw in this nation for all time. The word security is a broad, vague generality whose contours should not be invoked to abrogate the fundamental law embodied in the First Amendment. 
The guarding of military and diplomatic secrets at the expense of informed representative government provides no real security for our republic. The framers of the First Amendment fully aware of both the need to defend a new nation and the abuses of the English and colonial governments, sought to give this new society strength and security by providing that freedom of speech, press, religion, and assembly should not be abridged. This thought was eloquently expressed in 1937 by Mr. Chief Justice Hughes, great man and great Chief Justice that he was, when the court held a man could not be punished for attending a meeting run by communists. The greater the importance of safeguarding the community from incitements to overthrow of our institutions by force and violence, the more imperative is the need to preserve inviolate the constitutional rights of free speech, free press, and free assembly in order to maintain the opportunity for free political discussion to the end that government may be responsive to the will of the people and that changes, if desired, may be obtained by peaceful means. Therein lies the security of the republic, the very foundation of constitutional government. In introducing the Bill of Rights in the House of Representatives, Madison said, But I believe that the great mass of the people who opposed the Constitution disliked it because it did not contain effectual provisions against the encroachments on particular rights. Congressman Goodhue added, It is the wish of many of our constituents that something should be added to the Constitution to secure in a stronger manner their liberties from the inroads of power. The other parts were, Quote, the civil rights of none shall be abridged on account of religious belief or worship, nor shall any national religion be established, nor shall the full and equal rights of conscience be in any manner or on any pretext infringed. Unquote. And, quote, the people shall not be restrained from peaceably assembling and consulting for their common good, nor from applying to the legislature by petitions or remonstrances for redress of their grievances. Compare the views of the Solicitor General with those of James Madison, the author of the First Amendment. When speaking of the Bill of Rights in the House of Representatives, Madison said, if they, the first ten amendments, are incorporated into the Constitution, independent tribunals of justice will consider themselves in a peculiar manner the guardians of those rights. They will be an impenetrable bulwark against every assumption of power in the legislative or executive. They will be naturally led to resist every encroachment upon rights expressly stipulated for in the Constitution by the Declaration of Rights. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, 
Thanks for listening to what SCOTUS wrote us.